Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at The Bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just €3 Euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Good afternoon. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. Um, hello and welcome to uh, this very special edition of the Shakespeare and Company podcast, recorded live from the Marquis at uh, Hay Festival in Hay on Wye. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Sandra Newman, whose new novel, The Men, is published in the UK this, this very day. Uh, the Men takes a very stark idea and runs with it. What would happen to the world, to society, to psychologies? if one day all the men and boys, everyone with a Y chromosome, in fact, just disappeared. Newman's vision is of a world set free, but also of a world plunged into mourning, in which some structures collapse while others hold firm, in which certain of those left behind cling on to the religious idea of men and all they stood for, while others set about adapting, organizing, and rebuilding something better. The men is largely told from the perspective perspective of Jane Pearson, a deeply compelling voice whose complicated personal history, which I'm sure we'll come on to discuss, raises the stakes of life in this yet-to-be-defined world even higher still. The Observer described the men as a dazzling work of speculative fiction, while Sarah Perry called it almost supernaturally propulsive, adding, Sandra Newman is a genius. Please join me in welcoming Sandra Newman to the Hay Festival and the Shakespeare and Company podcast. And we're going to begin to give you a little taste of the men with a short reading from Sandra. Okay, I'm just, I'm just going to read the first few pages so you get basically an idea of the voice and the, the kind of mood of the book. When the men disappeared, it felt like nothing. I was camping in the mountains of Northern California with my husband and my son. It was dusk, and the sky was all one color, grayish-violet, silken, (coughs) dim. The lime-green leaves of the alder above me were trembling and luminous, brighter than the sky. In the tent, my husband, Leo, was reading on an iPad and letting our five-year-old, Benjamin, who had night terrors, fall asleep against him. Through Through the tent's mesh window, I could make out the iPad's light. I was lying in a hammock, putting off joining them. It was August, hot even up here in the mountains, and I had an idea about watching the stars come out and feeling wild and solitary, bound to no one. I wanted to indulge my fantasies of escape, of being a prima ballerina in Japan, or sailing solo around the world. Fantasies in which I'd never married and had my whole life free. Still, I felt my husband and son there and loved that they were there. I was in love with them. I didn't want to be single and childless. I wanted to fantasize about it with them there. 
I wasn't worried either by their long silence. There had been times that I was frightened in the world. Bad times. This was not a bad time, and I was happy. At 7.14, an intense nothing happened, an elation that wasn't of the nerves or the brain. I would later recall it as being like drugs. When it passed, I felt Leo and Benjamin were gone, but quickly dismissed the idea as foolish. Mood swings were normal for me and often accompanied by bizarre ideas. I looked to the tent and saw the tablet's light, a vivified spot that made the tent appear warm and living. I didn't call out. I didn't want to wake Benjamin. I went back to my thoughts. At about eight o'clock, I fell asleep. Down the mountain, in the world of people, women were already calling the police. They were running through their houses, screaming names. They were pounding on neighbors' doors for help and finding their neighbors running through their houses, screaming names. They were driving to police stations and discovering them lit and empty with the doors left open. Small aircraft were falling out of the sky. I went to sleep on the mountain while the world fell apart. I slept right through till sunrise. Their living voices, gruff and deep. The sound of a man in another part of the house. Boys hanging from branches like monkeys, hooting and kicking out at each other. How three boys could sound like ten. Drumming on a table, whistling. Masculine, unselfconscious noise. Gone. Too few women on this committee. Another board of directors with no women. Men making decisions about women's bodies. Gentlemen's clubs. Men's rights. Women's magazines. Feminism. Gone. Watching a boyfriend play computer games. Laughing at a man's story, then another man's story. Bracing yourself when he shows you something he made. The relief when it's not bad. The girl act, putting on a little girl voice, wearing flat shoes to make sure he's taller. The big hand on your shoulder, him telling you it's going to be okay. You're beautiful, said with that authority. Letting him take over, letting him drive, letting him decide. Him carrying you to bed, the rush of being sexually helpless before it being an object of desire for men. Gone. The suffocated feeling of being talked over. A man putting on a high voice to mock you. At a party, a man's eyes passing over you to find a younger woman. Him answering your question, but addressing it to her. Two men talking for a young woman's benefit. She mutely attends as if judging a contest. You say something, and all three wait impatiently for you to finish. No one hearing you because they don't want to look at you. Standing at a mirror in a public restroom and seeing what they see. Him getting scary, him punching the wall, keeping your head down and letting it pass. Being ashamed you set him off. Being proud you didn't. The moment you realize you're not in control, all the magical thinking falls away, and you're a body being killed. 
or just coming to a group of men at a street corner, them falling silent and staring as you pass, not at your face, footsteps behind you in the dark, big hands on your throat, not being able to stop him, gone. Your father, your brother, your husband, your son. Okay. Thank you so much. And the thing I love about the, the beginning of the book is that it immediately, and I think as, as, as a man reading it, immediately you get a sense of the, the scope of the difference that would be visited <laughs> upon a world um, if, if such, a, such an event were, were, to, were to occur. Um, I'd like to begin with the beginning for you, the genesis of the book. Um, when you have such a distinct premise, such a distinct idea, I guess it's tempting as a reader to assume that that was the seed, that the, the idea was what would happen if, if we had a world without men. But I know sometimes the books mm -hmm. come together in mysterious ways. And so, for example, the, the character, the voice of Jane Pearson is so strong that I was also wondering, oh, perhaps the voice came first and then the premise came after. So could you just talk a little bit about how the, how the book came, came to be? Yeah, there, I mean, it's true. There, there was a strange and kind of messy pre-life to the book. So... Um, this book has been kind of in my head for 25 years, but it had nothing to do with the book that now exists. I've been trying to write this book, and the only thing that actually remains with the original book is the name of the protagonist, Jane Pearson, is still the same. And originally, Jane Pearson was just a woman, and the, the book was an epistolary novel where it was all of the love letters she had written to various people over a lifetime. And it was meant to be a sort of a commentary on the way women see their lives through the lens of their romantic history or their romantic biography. And in the meantime, she has a career and all of these other things, which to the reader should be obviously what are important about her life. But to her, the only important things are these romantic relationships. So that was the original concept of the book, which obviously has very little to do with <laughs> the book that it became. Um, but the character sort of has the... Has the kernel of that idea about her. She's, she's a person who lives in relation to other people and definitely in a particular way that's very, um, very female or very about how women are socialized to be. And so then the, the idea of the, the disappearance of, of, of the men. Um, now, I understand that this is, there's quite a tr tradition in um, certain strands of what might be called feminist sci-fi to imagine worlds in which either there were no men or in which men disappeared. Mm. Do you feel yourself consciously writing into that genre? Definitely, yes. It's a, it's a genre um, that meant a lot to me, I think, when I was a teenage kid reading science fiction, that... The entire idea of, of female separatism, uh, which I think was always sort of more potent and powerful as an idea than it was as a reality. In fact, my, my mother lived in an all-female commune at one time, and the, the utopianism was minimal in the actual <laughs> commune, which immediately split into two different 
factions that were at war, and it became about the war between the two factions. So, you know, human beings are, are disappointing in, in almost any configuration. But, um, but as a concept, as an idea, and especially in combination with the idea of the woman warrior, like often in these, in feminist separate, female separatist utopias, as conceived in science fiction, the women are adventurers, um, Often horses feature, like they, they're galloping on horses and, and going to war, um, all, all of that sort of thing. So the, there's a very strong wish fulfillment element to it, which is powerful for like a 19-year-old girl who perhaps feels a little bit squashed and overlooked and not as... Um, not, uh, one of the things that upset me most, actually, I think, about being born a girl was that adventure was not as available to me. And if I suggested that I was going to go and join the Navy, people would immediately tell me about all the terrible things that would happen to me <laughs> once I joined the Navy and how it was impractical or they would laugh in my face or, or whatever. And so I think that that is a lot of the appeal of the fantasy to me. Yeah. And then it's, it's one thing, I guess, coming up having like a strong concept, but it's another thing as a writer to make it convincing, to make that world mm. live, I guess, to, to think yourself into into that world. And one of the things I love about the passage that you read is that it feels like to, to Jane, the realities of that world kind of come as a sort of a rush almost to her, almost like a, like a wave coming in where she suddenly realized the extent to, think, to which things have changed and will change as, as, time, as time goes on. Was that a comparable experience to how it was for you as you were kind of piecing together your world without men? Did it sort of, did one idea lead to another and it sort of snowball, or was it more sort of painstaking and meticulous? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think um, we were talking about this before that at the same time that I was writing this book, um, COVID had descended upon the world. So I think a lot of the, the atmosphere of the world as, as Jane comes down from the mountain and encounters a society which has been blighted and transformed. A lot of that atmosphere is the atmosphere of COVID in New York City where I live, where, you know, within, within a few weeks, it, it, you know, there was the phase of the ambulance sirens going all day and all night. And then there was the phase which seemed like strangely terrifying, but also utopian where all the streets were blocked off and there was no traffic and you could go and walk down on the riverfront and be completely alone. And then as the summer wore on, it became a strange kind of bacchanalian party atmosphere when there were a lot of parties in the streets and a lot of streets that were given over to, to drinking because people could only drink outside. And as well, there, there was a craze for fireworks, which completely took over the city. And some, you know, I guess fireworks smugglers must have caught on to this. The fireworks are illegal in New York City. Um, <laughs> because they were selling like really professional grade fireworks out of the backs of cars and everybody along the riverfront was setting them off at night. So you could go down, I used to go running on, along the riverfront like at 10 o'clock at night and all along the riverfront there were these fireworks going off the entire time. Um, and it was hard not to love it, to, to make a long story short. It's this strange feeling which I think uh, sadly not everyone got to experience this with COVID. I'm always conscious when I talk about this that people lost people, people are permanently disabled. Um, but at the same time, there was this change in society. And I think, or this temporary 
change in society. And I think that is something of the atmosphere of the book, is the, the profound grief and, and fear accompanied by this feeling of potential for society and a different idea of society. And, and one of the things I've, I found really interesting was how a society develops, a sort of a post-male society develops, which I suppose we should make the distinction between a society which develops after men disappear and a society which developed without men at all. Because it becomes clear that the, the Jane and the other women you write about are still living, in a sense, within the, the scaffold of a society that was designed in a patriarchal sense. And that's a, sort of a tension I found very, very interesting in the book between the sort of the remnants of what came before and what perhaps the, the sort of the, the society that women might naturally build. Yeah, I think that the book lives in that space between um, what's, le what's left over. I think, th actually, th the book is kind of getting at the question of whether society would change. Would society change? Would, th would anything actually be different in the long run? Or would all of those kind of power niches just be occupied again and everybody slot into the same society? Um, and in some ways, it seems to be happening one way and in some ways it seems to be, you know, I'm not going to give away the ending, but, but basically like a lot of it is, is about that, is about how power structures are thrown off and there's this kind of brief moment of, of somewhat communitarian anarchy, but then the world begins to try to reconstitute itself and people tr scramble to determine the form it will take. But one of the, the most sort of profound sensations I had, and, and again, saying this, sort of reading it as a man, I, I felt really confronted by just the, sort of the knowledge of how it must come as an extraordinary relief to s s the majority, such so as so many women, to have this certain sort of layer of potential violence removed from the society from society and that was one of the things that really struck me early on in the book was this sense of bre a, a breathing taking place mm. a kind of an, a, a sort of an expansion and i think that's one of the reasons that uh, it, these ideas work so well in fiction is that you know that could be that could be described in a in a work of sociology or a work of philosophy but it wouldn't necessarily have the same impact as sort of ex living essentially as a reader alongside these women who feel this profound liberation from threat. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting like that, that um, it, this is just a different, a slightly different aspect of the same thing. When I was working on the book, people would ask me what I was working on and what my next novel was going to be at parties. And, and I would, you know, you have a few seconds at a party and you want to amuse the person that you're talking to. That's your main aim, you know, you, they're not going to buy your book. They're not going to remember who you were like a year and a half later. So you just want to amuse them and make them like you. So, so I would say to them, well, it's set in a world where all of the men disappear. And then I would say, and immediately everything gets better. <laughs> and, and everyone would laugh. And, like they, and they would laugh partly because they kind of, you know, you don't need to think about it. You get the joke. You know what the joke is. And then recently I made the mistake as I was introducing the book before publication of making this same presentation on Twitter 
And my life has not been peaceful ever since. It was a profound and grave social error to, to imagine that this would be taken as a witticism of any kind on Twitter. Um, so, like, as they say, RIP my mentions on Twitter. And, and unfortunately, once it happened on Twitter, like, now the Daily Mail has gotten in on the act. It's, it's been, been the end, because, of course, what's... The, the Twitter people are angry at me and the, the Daily Mail, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> it's not even worth going into. It's exactly the same thing that happens to anyone who says the wrong thing of any kind on, on social media, so it almost has no meaning. But, but, but it's sort of interesting that something that is such a universal kind of gut feeling, like the men disappear, the world immediately gets better, ha, 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 is also at the same time something that we find really offensive to say, like that people can easily just flip that over and find it really, really like challenging in a bad way or gross or creepy or just a horrible thing to say. So, so I, th I think that's, that is, is interesting. And another layer to that, um, it's funny, I was thinking of this um, particular quote quotation and then it comes up in the book when one of the characters is reading uh, a book from by John Berger from Ways of Seeing mm. so the, the beginning of the book and that very famous line men act and women appear men look at women women watch themselves being looked at the surveyor of woman in herself is male the surveyed female and I just thought it, it was, it was it's, it was fascinating because that's another layer to it again beyond this this sense of external threat, an external regard which had been removed, there's also has to be a reconfiguring of how women think about and look at them, themselves because so much of the conditioning of the, our idea of women has been through the, the male lens of society. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that I found most interesting about like my... My imaginary idea, my idea of what the world would be like is definitely that women would, some women would completely stop dressing up or attempting to look good, whereas others would just continue or even dress up more. You know, it's, it's sort of like there's, there's a certain kind of liberation from self-consciousness that goes with it, which I think of as like a locker room atmosphere. Um, but at the same time, why? because women notoriously also dress for each other. Like, like, how would it change? How does the consciousness of what you look like change when the person who's witnessing you is of the same sex? Um, and then how does sexuality change? Like, how, how quickly and easily can, can women convert to being, like, all same sex? One of the, you know, one of the main characters, one of the point of view characters is gay, and she's sort of, there's like a moment, she's, she goes through the same like re wrenching grief that the main character, the first person character does. But then there's one moment when she's just going down to like a, a food bank in Los Angeles, which is notoriously populated by some of the most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> and she suddenly becomes conscious of the smorgasbord the world has suddenly become for her as like a gay woman in a world where everyone must be either gay or alone. And so there's, there's this kind of moment where she's trying to tell herself, no, actually, just be happy. There's a future. There's a future. Um. Let's just talk a little bit more about, about Jane Pearson, because um, 
Well, I'll, I'll let you sort of introduce her and, and a little bit of her backstory because I don't want to, to do it and then give away too much. Um, so, yeah, could you just tell, tell our listeners a little bit about Jane Pearson, as much as you're happy to reveal to people who have, maybe you haven't yet read the book? Okay. Um, basically, Jane, Jane has a, a really a sort of a complex backstory where she was groomed by a sexual predator as a very young girl, but turned into his accomplice. So it's sort of, you know, partly like inspired by, there was a, there was a girl who was used that way by um, Jeffrey Epstein and, and Julian Maxwell like, to, to lure other girls in. So it's it's a story that's sort of that's sort of similar to that, but then when when they finally get un, unmasked and prosecuted, she is she is turned into a scapegoat alongside him. And in some ways, she is more scapegoated than the man, you know, the adult man who is using her, because it's sort of just a sexy and appealing story. And so that's that's kind of her backstory that she's bringing to this. And my my sense is that when the the event happens and and the men disappear, that kind of reconfigures her place in society to an extent. Like she's not, it's it's not a case of like she doesn't suddenly feel that she is freed from 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 this backstory. I mean, she still you know she talks about her face being very recognizable to people, and they Mm -hmm. and they still think of her. As a, as, as a predator, but there does seem to be something, some sort of weight, again, that is lifted, as if almost that the, a lot of the, um, the guilt and shame that has been placed on her, so, uh, on her shoulders comes from, uh, comes from men, in fact. And when, and when they disappear, yeah, there, there's a, there's, there is a, a reconfiguring of sorts, I guess. Yeah, there's sort of... Um it's it's kind of interesting because she never she never throws it off even when people forgive her she doesn't really forgive herself so she she's never free and that's part of the the story is her trying to like she's one of the people who just wants the old world back no matter what happens and no matter how good her life is in the new world um, but um, there there is a sense like to to some degree the the world of the novel tends to feel very almost eerily good. Um, like, I think the reader should kind of distrust it because it, it feels a little too good to be true all the way through. Um, and a little bit too much like someone's fantasy of what an anarchist commune would be. And so, and so th- there's a lot of that in the novel. I think I think a lot of it was me trying, just trying to imagine people being happy and having fun in a difficult world, but... And yet not everybody is happy and having fun. And this is one thing that comes from the... which we could talk about the title of the book, because, of course, obviously there's... once people understand the, the premise, there's a very obvious reading of the title. But within the book itself, there is also this phenomenon uh, known as the men, um, which is... Well, well, how how would you describe it? It's kind of it's a it's an online sort of video series montage, like it's a yeah, ba- basically like 
Almost immediately after the men disappear, various people, not everybody, but various people are, are sent a kind of a spam email link. And the spam email link leads you to this website which seems to show the men where they've gone. And, the, and you see men and boys, and some men are carrying infants in their arms, and they're walking through this, this strange landscape. Um, and so people have different opinions about whether this is real, whether this is a real place, and this is really where the men have gone, or whether it's a hoax of some kind, and, and you know, it becomes like a subject of conspiracy theories and fascination and controversy. And, but anyway, I, I'm not going to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, al and almost sort of it seems to um, sort of satisfy a sort of a, a, a religious urge perhaps in in some people to 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 i guess reconnect with the the world that they have lost and reconnect with the the people yeah and i think in the in the world we live in now that's sort of like it's the religious the religious impulse that we bring a lot of the time to social media or to doom doom scrolling the news that you you feel that if you just pay enough attention to the news you will somehow be able to mentally control it as you might have believed when you were five years old, that if you concentrated hard enough, you would be able to move a paperclip with the force of your mind, um, which is certainly something that I've experienced like over the past few years. Yeah. And the um, obviously the the society that um, that comes to pass during uh, once 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 the event takes place, as you say, it's sort of there are um, things which are broadly good, but there is also, of course, certain things carried over like. Political tensions, political rivalry. That you know, a, a new president needs to be elected, and one of the uh, one of the candidates for the the presidency is uh, so Evangeline. So a, a again a, a character from from Jane's past who represents this kind of new or at least new to me, I'm assuming you made it <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, political philosophy called um, uh, commensalism. Um, so yeah, firstly, could you maybe give us a little bit of a, an idea about that, that concept? Because it's, it's in fact an idea that comes from biology before being transposed into, into politics, right? Okay, well, commensalism in the, in the book is basically, in biology, commensalism refers to a phenomenon whereby one organism survives by sort of parasitizing another organism, but without causing it any harm. So there, you know, there are fish that entirely feed off the feces of other fish, <laughs> and they, they aren't harming these fish, but they, they are completely dependent on them. Um, or there are, there are certain kinds of insects that inhabit the hives or nests of other insects. Um, so anyway, commensalism is this phenomenon in biology, and so the, the idea of commensalism in the book is basically that whenever that in society, in human societies, you can, the people we normally see as parasites are actually commensal organisms, that if you're living off of welfare, you're not using resources that anybody else needs for their biological needs, and therefore you're a commensal organism rather than a parasite. Um, I'm not sure, I think in the book, I spent hours and hours like boiling down this explanation so it would be both brief <laughs> and easy to understand and it would be meaningful. But anyway, that's, that's the core of the philosophy and there are other ideas that are actually just, that I sort of refer to that are more stolen from, just completely stolen from other left-wing 
thinkers, like the, the idea of the Jubilee year and, and so on. So, and then that's the um, uh, this, the sense that we get is that this sort of this is a philosophy which evolved, the, which Evangeline uh, sort of wrote before the event took place, before the men disappeared. Mm -hmm. But it becomes very clear that it's sort of there was almost no chance that it would ever come to pass in a world controlled by men. And suddenly there's this oh, sort of again opening up of potential for this uh, sort of radical or sort of beneficial philosophy to, to take root in a, in a women-only yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and in the new world, um, it's sort of, it's again, like there's, there's a, something of a feeling of it being a little too good to be true. Everything happens very easily and commensalism suddenly becomes like a national force and things fall into place. Um, and there are, there are these, sort of, these sort of happy scenes where they're driving around the country to rallies. And it's, um, it's almost like a national street party. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to talk about things without giving too much yeah. away. Um, I should, on, on that note, actually, it might be a good moment to open up to, to questions from the audience. If anybody has a question... For Sandra, just raise your hand, and we'll um, we'll get a, a microphone to you. Don't be shy. Yeah, we have we have one just down there. We we'll get the microphone. Thanks. Um, I was just wondering how you did your research for the book. Did you speak to lots of other women about how they would feel about men not being around, or was it all internalized? Um, it wasn't. It was like, as I said, it was during COVID. So there was a lot of, there was a huge amount of internet research. And, um, and it's interesting how frustrating it could be to try, to try to figure things out about gender because people will report completely contradictory things as fact online. Um, so like the, the, only, the only thing that really sticks in my head is a tidbit of, absolutely firm information is that the most female occupation of all is speech therapist. That's the most female occupation for some reason. So there would be an overabundance of speech therapists in this world. <laughs> um, I did speak, like, as, as, briefly, as briefly mentioned, I did speak to my mother about her time in the women's commune. And, and I did a lot of research. I read all the previous, well, not all, because there are too many of them, but a great many of the previous Feminist utopia is mostly written in the period of second wave feminism, where either the, the men and the women are separated and the women develop a perfect communist society while the men des descend into authoritarian violence. Every single time, I'm not kidding. <laughs> nobody, nobody could imagine a single good outcome for men. Um, and including male writers, like interestingly, the male writers were even worse because while the, while the female writers somehow imagined some way f for the men and women to have sex, the male writers seemed to universally use this as a pretext for, for extreme homophobia and they would imagine, I'm not gonna even describe the things that they imagined, but they're, they're really hair-raising and give you like a really unwanted window into the subconscious of certain kinds of masculinity. <laughs> Other questions? Yeah, there's a lady just there. 
Um, how long does the, this period of, of menlessness last? And what is the, 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 the solution to reproduction? Or does this female community just die out? OK, um, the, the period of the book is nine months. Um, which seems which seems significant. I thought it might be significant when I started writing the book. I was going to actually I actually had this idea, which I won't go into because it doesn't happen in the book. So I don't want people to be disappointed when they open the book. Um, anyway, so but it is nine months, and um, and actually I discovered somewhat to my disappointment. Uh, this was one of the pieces of research I did into like how difficult is it currently scientifically to have a baby without sperm. And we're, we're shockingly close to being able to do this. They've already successfully done it with mice. So there would be a high mortality among the fetuses, but you could actually reproduce without, without men, <laughs> without sperm. And, and it's very likely that within a tolerable period of time, um, th like really the expense would be the main thing. Like society would have to ultimately be almost organized around the production of babies by this means because it would be so expensive and, and swallow so many resources. But, but it's completely technologically, scientifically possible. Just picking up on that, is that through, is it essentially cloning or is that taking two different sort of X chromosomes and mashing them together. Um, it's, it's, it's I don't have the technical language there, clearly. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It's called in vitro gametogenesis, if you want to Google it. Um, and it is, it, is, it is really interesting. And again, like super hard to research online, like really frustrating, difficult, frustratingly difficult to research online. But um, it is, I think, akin to cloning. Yeah. Any more questions? Yeah. There's two over here, the lady first. Did you, um, did it change your view on cooperation in yourself? How do you mean? How do you mean? Well, you've explored political ideas about cooperation. You've taken a, you've got an idea about gender and the change in society that would happen. And I wonder how that lived in you. I think, um, this is one of those, I think that one of the differences between art and science is that scientists have to be honest um, because the experiment, at least as long as you don't, well, actually, that's not true. Scientists can just completely cheat, but <laughs> as long as you perform the experiment correctly, the experiment will give you an honest answer. Uh, whereas if you're writing a book, the book doesn't have to give you an honest answer. You can kind of cook the books. And so I started out needing to believe in cooperation. And I, I think the book ended up expressing every doubt that I had about the possibility of cooperation, while also kind of like grasping it until like sweat was dripping from its fist, <laughs> if, you, if you know what I mean. Like the, so there, there is like, I still have like a stubborn insistence on believing that we can cooperate and we can make a better world. I mean, we, meaning men and women and, you know, non-binary people, like everybody, we can all, we can all work together. We can all forgive each other. We can all create better ways of, of, having, of having a society. Um, but I, I can't help noticing that we haven't done it, so. <laughs> 
Sorry. Do you explore the, um, the differences that society might have based on environment? So would an all-female society in, a, in an environment where there were not enough resources organize itself differently, for example, to a male and female society, or in the, uh, in the event there was an excess of resources, for example? Um, a lot of it, the, a lot of the immediate effect is is to do with resources. You know, there's there are obvious differences. Like there's a there's an energy crisis immediately. Like if you you can really really easily think like which which professions are mostly male, which are going to fall apart immediately. So there's an energy crisis, and there has to be a difference in how transport is organized. Like you you have to. You would have to concentrate on public transport purely because that's the easiest, that's the easiest way to replace those functions. Um, but at the same time, there's too much housing. So, you know, people can live in much better homes, which, like, immediately, and, like, our, our current real estate situation feels a bit utopian, I've, I've got to say. So... And as far as like the, I, th I think like really in the book, because it's just nine months, the resource allocation has a lot more to do with how people behave in an emergency than it does to do with, with sex or gender. I think it's plausible because we know that in an emergency, people just try to get things done and it tends to turn into a communal solution. We all have this recent experience from the first days of COVID Although we also have the experience of how that falls apart and becomes a different animal over time. And that's one thing which we haven't, uh, we didn't have time to touch on, but which does come up a lot in the book as well as, of course, you remove this layer, this kind of uh, patriarchal layer, but there are still questions of class, for example. There are still questions mm. of race. There are still questions of education. And it's uh, obviously these are sort of, in the, as you said, in the first nine months. You're, these are not going to play out fully, but we definitely get a sense in the book of these tensions, um, again, being slightly reconfigured, but certainly not going away. Yeah, it's very, it's very much... Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to write books that are against pessimism. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. Like When you try to write books that are against pessimism, they're also somehow about pessimism. <laughs> you know, you're fighting the pessimism, and you create this kind of pessimism-shaped object that you're fighting. And so, so I think that's a lot of the book. It's, like, it's a book that's, that's trying to hope and trying to find different forms of hope. And it finds a lot of different forms of hope. But it also finds a, a lot of different forms of, of threat. <laughs> so. Got time for a couple more questions, I think. Yeah, there's a gentleman there. Um, during your your research, like, did you did you see any actual examples where there was a society or a group or a country that was dealing better than the rest with gender inequality or demographic shocks that you think we could we could get inspirations from? Huh. T talking of hope. Talking of hope. Um, well, something, you know, I've thought about this so much that you can imagine, like, spending, in the, current, in the current world, spending, like, two and a half years thinking about gender is quite an experience. And I think one thing that, that I ultimately came to think is very hopeful is the way that gender is being deconstructed by young people. I think it's, like, 
it's one of the most profoundly utopian things that has happened in the past like 30 years. And you can see like some people find it extraordinarily threatening and I, I think that's quite natural. But in its actual manifestation among young people, it seems to be one, like it's, it's one of the most harmless social changes. <laughs> like one of, one of the ones that has the fewest unintended consequences that does the least harm. And people, obviously, especially the right-wing press likes to talk about the harms and like scaremonger about them. But in reality, it's just, it's mostly a lot of people who have seen a way to not do something, which is one of the most difficult things to do in society is to not do a thing that has always been done. And so, so I think that's been, that's really potentially like a really extraordinary fix for a problem that has beset us forever, as long as it goes as it has been going. Yeah, I think we've got time for one more question, if anybody would like to jump in. Okay, well, in, in which case, I will just ask one, uh, one final question, and that, that is to do, um, we're not obviously going to, to, to talk about how the book ends, um, but I'm just wondering from a sort of a writing perspective, once you've, in a sense, once you've thought yourself into this world, was it a challenge for you to, to know how and where the book would end, or was it sort of built into the, the, original, the original conception? I, know, I had no idea how it would end, and I wrote five different endings um, so it was, I was so relieved when I finally wrote an ending that worked, or at least I, I hope everyone agrees that it works. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, you'll have to buy the book and read the book, uh, <laughs> to, to let us know. Um, Sandra will be doing a signing, I think, after her second event today, which is, is it 5.30, I think? Yeah, it's 5.30. So the, the signing will be around, it's about 6.30 in the in the bookshop, so do um, do stick around for that. Of course, the men is available um, from from the book uh, from the the Hay Festival bookshop. All that remains for me to say is please join me in giving a big big thank you to Sandra Newman. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.